Now, my mother would come up to me shortly thereafter, and I would be lying on the couch maybe having a nap. And she would say, Mark, will you take out the garbage? And I said, sure, Mom. I would love to take out the garbage. That would just thrill me to take out the garbage. She said, oh, Mark, you're the best son. <laughs> and then I'd roll over and go back to sleep. And so then my brother, who went and took out, said no and took out the garbage, didn't get the credit for it. And later on, my mother would say, Mark, I just want to thank you for taking out the garbage. <laughs> to which I'd say, you're welcome. <laughs> and I've always been the favorite son. You, you, know, you, know, you know that, don't you? Welcome to Church of the Rock from Winnipeg. Stay tuned to this week's thought-provoking message from Pastor Mark Hughes. So today I'm going to conclude the little mini-series I've done called The Tale of Two Cities. I've been basing it on the St. Augustine book, The City of God. And of course, I'll remind you of the story, in case you missed last week, in 410 uh, AD, the Visigoths, they sacked Rome, they came in, they defeated the Roman Empire, and nobody could believe it. A bunch of, you know, long-haired, crazy-eyes, tattooed hippies somehow defeat the Roman Empire. Nobody could believe it. And they came in, and they, and they burned the city, and they, uh, you know, raped the women, and they killed people, and they tortured people. And then to add insult to injury, they started telling the Roman people, Oh, by the way, the reason the empire fell is because you embraced Christianity and you abandoned your pagan gods. And if you hadn't done that, that wouldn't have happened. St. Augustine, who, of course, was this incredible mind, this, this academic living in North Africa, part of the Roman Empire, he was incensed by this, and he decided to write a rebuttal. And he sat down and started writing, and over the next 13 years, he published 22 books. It was like Harry Potter, just one book after another. And by the time he was done, 22 books over 13 years, it became the textbook for Christianity and became the most read book for, for hundreds and hundreds of years after that. And he basically covered every subject from the existence of evil to the second coming. And for some strange reason, I think I can sum up everything he had to say in two weeks. <laughs> Who do I think I am? But nevertheless, that was what he was doing. And, and his main thesis was this. It was called the city of God, but it was really the tale of two cities. And the two cities were the heavenly city, which he called the city of God, and the earthly city, which we sometimes call the city of man. And the fact was that we lived in this dynamic tension between these two worlds. That we are in the world, but not of the world. And though we are residents or maybe even sojourners or pilgrims in this world, we are really citizens of heaven. So week one, we talked about that, that in the city of God, when we're living according to the principles of the city of God, we live by higher values. And so one of the things Augustine did was he... He chastised the Roman Christians for falling into the values of the world. So we talked all about that last week. St. John said this. He said, do not love the world and do not love the things of the world. For he who loves the things of the world does not have the love of the Father in him. Boy, that's a strong statement, isn't it? It's a crazy statement. And every one of us are pulled in to some level and some degree into this world. This world has a sparkle. It has an appeal but we forget 
that pales in comparison to heaven and what heaven is all about. So that's the first thing, that in the city of God, we live by higher values. The second thing is in the city of God, we live by higher virtues. So one of the things that Augustine said about the Roman Empire, and he challenged even the Christians on this, was that he had felt that the real reason the Roman Empire had fallen was because they had lost their virtues. They had, and he said, even though the Roman Empire was ungodly in the sense that they didn't know the true God, they actually did earlier on in their existence live by certain virtues, and they were people of honor, and they were people of dignity, and certain things like this, but they had become lustful and lazy, and they had become undisciplined, and because they had lost their virtues, that's why they had become weakened, and there's a lot of evidence to that fact, by the way. And so he said that was the reason why the Roman Empire that was so powerful at one time came crumbling down at the hands of the Goths. And being Augustine, Augustine, he was an incredibly learned man. He had studied virtually every one of the philosophers before him in depth. He didn't just read them. He had studied them, and he knew them, and he refuted many of the things they said. But he was a bit of a, uh, a fan of Plato. And the thing he loved about Plato uh, was the four cardinal virtues. And uh, some of you would be familiar with these. They've stood the test of time 2,400 years later. People still talk about the cardinal virtues. I'll throw them up on the screen. They are, they are prudence, which is practical wisdom. They are temperance, which is moderation in all things. They are justice, which is doing by, right by your fellow man. And they are fortitude, which is strength or courage in the face of adversity. But, but here, was, here was the thing was that he, the kind of twist that he said. He said, even the cardinal virtues are not the greatest good. He said, there is a higher virtue. There is a higher good. And today what we're going to discover is we're going to find out what the higher virtue is. If there is a higher virtue than the cardinal virtues, then I think we need to know about that. So here's where we're going to start. We are in, in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 22. I'm going to start with verse uh, 35, and here it goes. It says, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law, and the prophets. And so he actually kind of answers the question here, what is the highest virtue? Some of you have already figured this out. And when he said, what is the great commandment? That's what he was saying. He said, what is the greatest commandment? What is the preeminent commandment? What is the commandment that if, if, if you figured that out, then you figured everything else out? And, uh, you know, if you think about that, if you were asked that question, I mean, you know better. But if you didn't know better, you would, you would probably have gone to one of the Ten Commandments, wouldn't you? You'd say, well, that murder one, you know, not doing it, that one seems pretty important. Maybe that's the greatest of the commandment. Or, you know, or maybe, or maybe not having idols and worship, that seems a pretty good one. But what Jesus does is he actually doesn't name the Ten Commandments. He actually talks about the summary of the Ten Commandments, and that's where that comes from. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's after Moses has read the Ten Commandments for the second time. He now sums it up, and he says, this is what it all means that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and all your strength. And so we know that, that as the great commandment. And then Jesus says, and there's a second part of that, 
and that's to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, this is why it's the highest virtue. This is why it is the highest good. Because if you can do that, all the rest of the stuff takes care of itself. Isn't it kind of true that if you can love God and love your neighbor, you'll probably keep all the Ten Commandments? Would that be true? I've told you this before. Right? If you love God, you're probably not going to worship idols. Right? If you love God, you're probably not going to murder your neighbor. Or sorry, if you love your neighbor, you're probably not going to kill him. Right? Not going to steal his stuff. Not going to take his wife. No? You know, <laughs> okay, here's what we're going to have to do. We're going <laughs> to have to back up the bus here, and, and let's talk about what virtue is. Because I'll tell you something, our world doesn't even know what virtue is. They have lost the understanding of what virtue even is. And here, see, they think virtue and values are the same thing, and it's actually not true. See, values are those beliefs that you hold on the inside, Virtues are the behaviors that you demonstrate on the outside. And so they're connected, right? Because your values, if they're true values, become your virtues. They become the things that you express on the outside. And our world hasn't the foggiest idea what a virtue is. Let me ask you this. How many of you are familiar with the term? It's a relatively new term, virtue signaling. How many of you know what virtue signaling is? It depends how widely you read kind of current things. Most of you didn't put up your hand. But when I, when I mention it, you will actually recognize it. Virtue signaling is when you indicate you hold dear certain beliefs, but you don't act on them. And we see all kinds of people doing that today. You know, you see politicians and actors and all kinds of people. If you watch the news, you see people virtue signaling all the time. They come across as so noble and so righteous and, and so, so morally superior. And so what I'm trying to say to you is this, is we have got caught up in this linguistic gymnastics where people are telling us what you can and cannot say, making it all about empty words. And virtue is not words. What virtue is, is virtue is actually action. And Jesus talked about this with, uh, with the Pharisees because the Pharisees were a bunch of, they were a bunch of, a, they were virtue signalers is what they were. They were out making it seem like they were doing this and doing that and everything was for a show. And, and, and he looked at them and he says, you're a bunch of whitewashed sepulchers. And he, and he told them this parable. Do you remember the parable? And he said there was this father and he had two sons. And he said to his first son, will you, will you do this particular task? And the son said no. And later on thought better about it went and did it. And the second son, he asked him to do the task, and he said yes, and didn't do it. And then the skill testing question was, which one of the sons did the will of the father? Which was, which one? It was the first one. The one who said no actually did the will of the father, because even though he said no, he went and did it. Whereas the one who said yes, even though he said the right words, he didn't do it. And so because he didn't do it, then it wasn't virtue. He didn't do the will of God. Now, I particularly hate this parable. Do you know why? Because I'm the second son. That's why. <laughs> Gro growing up, I was always the second son. So my, I, I, have the, I have this brother who's next younger than me. He's the middle child. Middle children are the worst. Did you know that? Don't ever be a middle child. I mean, they're, they're independent, they're rebellious. That, that's just who they are. So there's my generalization. So, so my next in line brother, my mother had come up to my, my brother and say, Todd, would you take out the gar garbage? He'd say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. And then he would feel bad about it, and he would go take out the garbage. 
Now, my mother would come up to me shortly thereafter, and I would be lying on the couch maybe having a nap. And she would say, Mark, will you take out the garbage? And I said, sure, Mom. I would love to take out the garbage. That would just thrill me to take out the garbage. She said, oh, Mark, you're the best son. <laughs> and then I'd roll over and go back to sleep. And so then my brother, who went and took out, said no and took out the garbage, didn't get the credit for it. And later on, my mother would say, Mark, I just want to thank you for taking out the garbage. <laughs> to which I'd say, you're welcome. And I've always been the favorite son. You, you, know, you, know, you know that, don't you? And when I read that parable, I go, there's something I don't like about this parable. <laughs> there's something on some level that I can't quite seem to figure out that makes me look bad. And see, here's what we need to understand about virtue. You know how virtue is tested? It's a toothpaste test. Do you know what the tooth, anybody know what the toothpaste, toothpaste test is? It's super simple. Here's how it goes. When the pressure's on, what's on the inside comes out. You do that every morning, don't you? And when the pressure is on the tube, what's on the inside, the toothpaste comes out, and that's how values and virtues work together. When the pressure, see, I don't care what you say your values are. We will discover what your values are when the pressure is on. And when you're in the pressure cooker, and when the pressure is on, we'll see what's on the inside. And you know what? During this, this, this global pandemic we've gone through, we saw what was on the inside of people. And when the pressure was on and when the squeeze got on, people were in a test and what was really, truly who they were and their real virtues have come out during this time. So there's, a, there's a, this amazing sermon that, that has been preached once on, this, on the mountain. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, is it is actually the interpretation of the Great Commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because it's a lot easier said than done. You say, well, I love God and I love my neighbor and, I'm, and so there I am. Well, you know, we're not sure you love God and love your neighbor until we see it in action, until we see it beginning to manifest itself in real life. And so Jesus gives us this extraordinary sermon that is so challenging, so counterintuitive, that if we're really honest with ourselves, very few of us can even do it. And actually, I'm in the process, some of you probably know this, and I'm in the process of writing a book about this. I'm calling it, I'm not calling it the greater virtue, I'm calling it the, the greater uh, perspective, and it's in my series, A Greater Purpose, A Greater Passion, A Greater Perspective, and it will be for sure the toughest of all the books because it's based on the secrets of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm telling you, they take Christianity to a whole other level. So, so I'll give you a, a few examples here. So Jesus says... You have heard it say, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil person. If he slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek as well. And if he takes away your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Here's my question for you. Do you know anybody who lives like that? I don't know anybody that lives like that. I know a few stories about it. I've done it a few times, didn't like it. Uh, there's people just don't live like that. We don't resist evil. If someone slaps us on the right cheek, we want to slap them back. We don't turn to them the left cheek. When someone steals something from us, we don't invite them back, give them more stuff. Uh, it's not how we live. We, this is such a challenging and such a higher virtue, it's beyond belief. There's one of my favorite stories about this, and it's a true story. It's about a, an Irish boxer. He's the boxing champion of Ireland, and he came to Christ. He became a street preacher, 
And he was out in the street preaching one day, and some guy comes up to him on the street and sucker punches him. Punches him right on the cheek. He reels like this. He said, you got another one coming to you? And hit me on that side. So the guy sucker punches him on the, on the left cheek, and then this Irish boxing champion turned preacher proceeded to beat the living tar out of this guy. <laughs> Left him lying on the ground. The crowd that was gathered that day was absolutely aghast. And he turned to the crowd and he said, Jesus said to turn the other cheek. And beyond that, he gave no further instructions. It's <laughs> a good one. So I'll give you another example. This, this one is maybe a little bit more accessible because he says, you have heard it said, uh, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you are angry at your brother without cause, you are in, judgment, in, in risk of judgment. So he says, you've heard it said, th this one's easy for us because we always think, We're, I'm doing pretty good in life. I'm a pretty moral guy because I haven't killed anybody. How many of you have never killed anybody? Just, just curious. I'm like curious why so many of you don't have your hands up. Does that mean like that 30% of the room didn't put up your hand means you've murdered somebody? No. So, so we think we're pretty righteous. We think, well, I've never murdered anybody. I'm doing pretty good. No, you aren't. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. He says, big deal. I am saying to you, if you are angry at your brother, you're in danger of judgment. And what he's saying is he's saying, look at it's one thing not to murder them. Yeah, good for you. But if you're mad at them, if you hate them, if you're, if, you're, if you're holding resentment and bitterness against them, you're not such a great person. And you know, this is a challenging thing for us because the scripture says this, that if you will not forgive your brother, neither what? Who knows the rest of it? Neither will your father in heaven forgive you. This is pretty important stuff. And that's why he's saying this. He says, you've got to understand something that you need to be willing to forgive people. So I want to tell you my toothpaste test on this one. You want to hear it? I'm going to tell you whether you want to hear it or not. So, so I'm, at this, I'm at this conference, and I'm sitting in the back row. And, I'm, and when you're in the back row, you can do whatever you want. So, so I was sitting in the back row, and I'm leaning back like this, sitting in the chair, and I was listening. It was pretty good. And it was in a particular building I worked in, and there was a, 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 a he didn't work directly with me, but he also worked in the building. And he was walking along behind me, in the corridor behind me, and he saw me sitting there leaning back like this. And don't ask me why he did this, but he walked up to me, and he took his finger like this, and he went like this, whack! And he smacked the back of my earlobe, and, and he just hit it just right, and it really hurt. And I didn't know who had smacked me, and just all of a sudden it went like this. I turned around, I saw him, I took a big swing at him like this, and I missed him. He, and, he hit, and he reeled back like this. <laughs> and he walked away laughing and pointing at me, and I'm sitting there ticked right off. I'm ticked right off. No, I'm no longer listening. I'm no longer listening to things. You know what I'm doing now? What am I doing? Yes, I'm planning my revenge. That's what I'm doing. So I'm thinking of all the things I could do. I'm thinking I could go, I could, you know, maybe when he's in the bathroom or something, I'll give him a wedgie. You know, I'm thinking all kinds of, like, horrible things. And I was thinking about the worst thing. 20 minutes, my brain is racing like this. All I can think about is retaliation and revenge the whole time. I've completely blocked out the speaker. And then I hear the speaker preaching on this verse, the Sermon on the Mount, say, and if you have, if you're angry against your brother, you're in danger of judgment. What? 
<laughs> I felt like he was speaking right to me. And then I realized something. I was violating a principle that I'd lived by for, by years, for years, and I still live by today, and you all know it, and it goes like this, that I had made a determination that I'm going to forgive everybody. You know that. I'm going to forgive everybody all the time. And I thought, I'm not forgiving everybody all the time. I am mad at him. And you know how long that sting lasted on my ear? Like three seconds. <laughs> you know, it's, it hurt for three seconds and it was gone. There is no permanent damage. Look how pretty that ear is. <laughs> and so anyway, I decided I had to make it up for, to him. I thought, I can't have this attitude towards him. So the next week, I took him out for lunch. And uh, bought him lunch. We had a nice visit. And you know what? I never brought up the ear. Because if I bring up the ear, how can I win that? If I bring up the ear, then I haven't really let it go, have I? So the best thing, you know, I could have brought it up. I thought, I'm just leaving it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the bigger man. I'm going to get over this. So, so, I never, so I never brought it up, never told him I was mad about it. Never, we never talked about it. So then he moved away to another, another city. Hadn't seen him for like eight years. It was 10 years after the event. And I decided, for whatever reason, to tell this story. And I told it in a sermon. And it went out on air. He was living in Toronto. He was watching our show. He heard the story, and he knew it was him. And he phoned me up on Monday morning. He said, hey, Mark, it's Mike calling from Toronto. He says, just wanted to apologize for flicking your ear 10 years ago. <laughs> and I, thought, I can't believe that, that that thing's coming back 10 years later. But you get what I'm trying to say here. It's not such a great thing for us to go through life not killing people. We have to do a whole lot better than that. One last one is this. Uh, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you shall love your enemy. You shall bless those who curse you. You shall do good to those who hate you. You should pray for those who persecute you. And what Jesus did there with that, I mean, imagine that. Do you know that there's no other religion in the entire history of the world where the leader has commanded his followers to actually love their enemy? And this is at such a level that when we think about this, it is such a hard thing for us to do. We know how to love our neighbor and to hate our enemy. We're not very good at loving our enemy, but Jesus says that's where we need to go. The, the first thing is this, that, that in the city of God, we live by higher values. The second thing is in the city of God, we live by higher virtues. And the, last, and the final thing, and I'll just take a couple moments on this. The last and the final thing is this, and in the city of God, we live towards a higher victory. And one of the things that, that Augustine ch chastised the Roman Christians about was that they didn't understand, they couldn't figure out why they were suffering. In, in, uh, and why they had gone through this, and they thought God had abandoned them. And he was, he was really clear on them that they, they had to stop living for the temporal victories of this life. And he says, you're going to suffer in this world. That's just the way it is. And you need to remember that the suffering in this world for a Christian is different than the suffering in this world for a non-Christian. This is what he wrote. I'll throw it up on the screen, and I'll read it. Uh, these are the words of Augustine from the City of God. Wherefore, though good and bad men suffer alike, we must not suppose that there is no difference between the men themselves. For as the same fire causes gold to glow brightly and chaff to smoke, so the same violence of affliction proves, purges, clarifies the good, but damns, ruins, and exterminates the wicked. 
And thus it is the same affliction that the wicked detest and God and blaspheme while the good pray and praise. And what he is saying is that we have a completely different response to affliction than the world does. And he says that, you know, that God brings the rain and the, upon the just and the unjust alike. And it's also true for calamity. And probably many of you know that when we went through a global pandemic, everybody went through it. The Christian and the non-Christian. And really it became the toothpaste test for us and was to determine what kind of virtues, what kind of values do we have. And what Paul says is this, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working out a far greater eternal way to glory. And we seem to forget this simple principle that because we are sojourners in the earth, we might suffer a little bit on earth, and it's working towards a much greater victory, a much greater reward, and that everything on this earth, no matter how difficult and challenging it is, is preparing us for the next world, that the victory is so far above everything in this world, it doesn't matter, and that we need to quit lamenting a few small temporal losses in life. I know that losses are important, and I, I know we grieve over these things, and I know they, they hurt us, but if we make them final and the last thing, we've missed the whole point. So I'm going to give you a little illustration about this. Uh, any chess fans in the room, the game of chess, any chess fans, few chess fans in the, in the room, then you will know this. You will know that just recently Magnus Carlsen, the grandmaster, the 31-year-old uh, Norwegian, has won the World Chess Championship for the fifth time. He's only 31 years old. Here it is. Here's his record. He just keeps winning. He just keeps winning. This guy has a mind that is so extraordinary and uncommon. Uh, he had one, on one occasion, he challenged 70 people to a chess match, and he played 70 boards simultaneously. And here's the picture of it. He had, and they were, they, were, they were men, they were women, they were children. Uh, they were some very, very good players. There were some amateurs. Anybody who wanted in could get in. And he just went down the line. It took him six hours. He went down the line playing 70 boards at once. You had all the time in the world to make your move. And he would come around. And he would just make the move, make the move, make the move. He did that for six hours. When it was all done, he beat 68 of them. It was actually and a draw and a win. Uh, one guy won. One on one, there's no way this guy could have possibly beaten him. The, the way this man, mind's, man's mind works is, is not even human, really. So anyway, the, the, the recent battle was between him. Uh, here's a picture of it between him and the, the young Russian by the, who goes by, the, by Nipo. That's the short form of his name. And Magnus Carlsen did something that was so uncommon. What he did in, the, in game one and game two was he, he went out and he, and he actually started sacrificing players with no material gain right off the hop. And people couldn't figure out what he was doing. And former master, grandmaster Gary Kasparov says, I don't know what he's doing. What is he doing? Losing these players at the beginning of the game. And what he was doing, he was losing battles early on to set himself up in the end game to win. And he was able, in one game, it took him 20 moves to regain his material. But in the end, he did. And of course, he emerged from this, this series as the champion. The world, the chess world looked at it and said, there's, there's never been a, a person who can think this far ahead. There's never a person that could see how, how they could actually lose uh, at the early, in the opening to only to win in the end game. 
uh, Topolov, one of the grandmasters, they, they asked him this. He said, how does he do this? He says, you'll have to ask him. I don't know. He says, if you ask me, he should donate his brain to science. <laughs> and here's the thing I want you to understand, is God knows the beginning from the end. Do you think he doesn't know that we lose a few battles along the way? Does the scripture not say that we're going to have some trouble in this world? But what it tells us is that we need to take it as with a good attitude, understanding that in the end we win. What did Jesus say? You will have tribulation in this world. But what? Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. What did James say? James said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why would I count it all joy? Because you're going to lose a few battles along the way, but we are full of joy and full of excitement because we know in the end we win. And that's why Paul says that in all things we are more than conquerors. Why? Because all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Yes, you're going to lose a few battles along the way. Yes, you're not always going to be a winner. Why do we think that we're always going to have victories in earth? We are going to lose some battles. Every one of us is going to suffer some affliction here on the earth, but we don't worry about it because the final victory is ours. We are on our way to heaven. We are on our way to the greater victory, and that's why the scripture so clearly says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Because greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. People, we are citizens of the city of God, and the greater victory is ours. Let's stand together. If you'd like a booklet to help you understand more about God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, please contact us and we'd be happy to send you a free copy of the Book of Hope. Visit our website at www.churchoftherock.ca. Thank you for watching and God bless you.